We're in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And if you're following, uh, we're actually going to begin at uh, page 9 in your notes if you're following those. Uh, just a quick reminder that the, um, uh, the, the, the section that begins with chapter 5 um, and it will go uh, through 6 is what, from lack of a better way to describe it, the disorders that are a part of the church at Corinth. Uh, the one that we dealt with the last two weeks was difficult because there was a lot of discussion and, and I think perhaps uh, even some difficulties processing that, but the matter of discipline. This one, which begins with chapter 6, verse 1, and goes through uh, verse 11, actually, is a matter of... Um, Civil, the presence of civil lawsuits within the body, within the church, within the, the fellowships there at, at Corinth. Now, I want to begin, I want to begin this um, perhaps in a little bit of a different way. And I'm going to write something on the board, which is going to really sound, at first, difficult to grasp, but it really isn't. It's a big word that you understand, but that word, eschatology. The Church of Jesus Christ is an eschatological community. Now that's impressive, isn't it? Isn't that, that's an impressive concept, isn't it? Well, you know what, I, or at least I'm assuming you ought to understand what the word community means. But eschatological, eschaton, or eschatology, or here it's an adjective, eschatological, what does that deal with? Anybody know? Okay. This is the doctrine of last things. Eschatology is the study of last things. The study of the things that surround the second coming of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now that's all I'm going to say about that because that is the key to understanding the way Paul is framing this. <clears throat> let's just, uh, I'm not an artist, so I'm just going to draw a stick man and I'll draw two. But, and just Pretend I had a whole multiple of these stickmen, the whole huge community. When Paul says you're an eschatological community, you are looking forward to, anticipating, excited about, and frame much of your life around this truth, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then all of the events that accompany that, I'm just going to put a bunch of ellipsis points there, because the Bible teaches an entire cluster of events and things that are going to happen. And of course it culminates, it ends in the new heaven and new earth. Now, what is really important is we are to be future-oriented people. We are to be people because we're future-oriented people of hope. Now, I want to make sure, did everything I say up here make sense to you? <clears throat> that word is a big word, I know that. But if you think of it, it's a doctrine of last things. Eschaton comes from a Greek word, eschaton, last. But the doctrine of last things. It's all that's surrounding the teaching and the belief, which I'm assuming you all embrace, that Christ is coming back. When he sends back to the Father, he says, I'm going to come back. The angels that are there, when, the, when Jesus goes back, he's going to come. Just the same way he left, he's going to come back. So it's, it's important that we keep that in mind as we study this passage because Paul is going to appeal to this to encourage them to settle things they're dealing with now so let me put it another way one of the central teachings of the Bible is the future promises of God okay I'm over here the future promises of God should determine how we live today now that sentence does that sentence make sense to you? the future promises of God to determine how we live today. 
Now, if we are an eschatological community, and by we I mean the church, I don't mean the local body of believers, an organization on a street corner somewhere. I'm talking about the living body of Christ, the organic body of Christ. Because when the Bible talks about church, it speaks of the church as an organism, the living body of Christ, but also speaks of it as an organization, a structure, and a local body. I'm, he's talking about, and I'm talking about, the community of believers. And that, that future cluster of promises should affect how we live today, including, if Fred and I have a disagreement, should I take him to a civil law court and sue him? Paul's counsel is no. Now this is not dealing with criminal issues. The context of chapter 6 is not criminal issues. The church does not deal with criminal issues. Murder, thievery, you know, uh, all the things that are associated with violating the, the orderly issues of society and laws of society. God instituted government for that purpose. Romans 13 is a great place to start thinking about that. So, I want to make sure that you understand these last three or four minutes because if you don't understand what I just said, what Paul is appealing to is going to not maybe be as clear as it should. Summarizing it perhaps the best way I can, the future promises of God should affect how we live today. So he says, I'm now beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous? and not before the saints. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so that's how they translate that. One paraphrase, uh, which is the Living Bible, I believe, is the paraphrase I'm thinking of, has, how dare you take one another to court? So the issue is, again, I'll use, because he's sitting right next to me, Fred and I have an issue of disagreement. It is an issue that is serious, and we could take it down to, uh, you know, if it's a federal issue, to federal district court, or to the, to, uh, uh, the judge downtown in the, in the court building down there, or to a county or to a state court to get it resolved. Let's say it's a property dispute. Let's say it's a, we're neighbors living right next to you, but we're brothers in Christ. Paul is saying you should be able to settle it without going before an unrighteous law court. So you have this situation as current. We don't know what issues there were. He doesn't tell us. But you have brothers and sisters in the Corinthian churches. Remember, they're house churches, so they're not huge. They know, they know each other. And whatever the dispute was, instead of settling it, they go down to the Greco-Roman court down in the Agora at the Bama seat and have a pagan who doesn't know anything about them, anything about their faith, settle it. And he says, that's inconsistent with who you are. And so he appeals to the future promises to enable and encourage and exhort them to solve the problems among themselves. Now, verse, if you notice it's your note, in your notes, the way I structure it in your notes, Paul gives three reasons why you should settle it among yourself and not go before pagan law courts. And when I say pagan, I mean you know, unrighteous, people who don't understand your values, understand who you are. In Paul's time, it would have been the Greco-Roman law court. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2, in verse 3, and verse 9, he begins, Do you not know... Do you not know? Do you not know? Three times. That's, that's good for us because it helps us to outline the thought. But it also is something, it's kind of a, uh, if I use the phrase, a literary device, it's a, uh, you know what I mean by that? In other words, it's a, it's a way of saying something that if we flesh it out, it would go something like this. Don't you remember that I taught you in other words, he's not saying something to them in verse 2, verse 3, or verse 9 that they didn't already know. So in a way, it's reminding them of something that he had taught them. You follow me so far? 
So what had he taught them? Verse 2. First reason why you should not take disputes between yourselves as Christians to a pagan law court. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law court? Now we have to um, flesh out and, and make sure we have a clarity of understanding of what he means by judge. What he's talking about there is having administrative authority over the world, ruling and reigning with Christ in the coming kingdom. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus talked to his disciples about the kingdom and that he's coming back and that they will rule with him. The Bible promises us in multiple places that when we put our faith in Christ, we now become a joint heir with Christ. We will rule and reign with him. I don't, honestly, men, I don't exactly know what that means. I mean, in terms of the real specific detail, the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible doesn't tell us, as a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about the eternal state or the kingdom. It gives us an outline, but exactly what that means but it's appealing to you are going to rule and reign with Christ. If that is your position in the future, that should determine how you deal with disputes today. If you're going to have that kind of authority and that kind of responsibility, as he says, why can't you handle these little things down here? See what he's saying? And when you frame it, it comes to... I know a couple of you have questions, but I want to finish this thought. It comes back to this. This is who we are. We're an eschatological community. We put our faith in Christ. Our next event, so to speak, the center of our hope is he's coming back for us. That should motivate and, and, and really define how you live now. And that's what he's appealing to. It's absolutely extraordinary. <clears throat> so he's saying, if Fred and I have a dispute, we should settle it either by having the body help us to settle it or have a mediator legally come in from our body and settle it or I'm using some of the examples of how it's applied today. Their organization can help us do that. Submit to binding arbitration among believers because if you can't agree then that says something about you, and it says something about me. We are an eschatological community that has incredible promises made to us. Behave now in light of what's promised to you in the future. Um, this is a question that I've had for a while, and a couple of apologies. One, if you hold an all-millennial position, and... I do not. I do not. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> Wait a second. Do you believe, what does that word mean? There is the, no millennial kingdom. It means that there's no thousand year reign of Christ. People believe that that's an out. Some people believe that's an the next, The next event is the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, okay. There's no millennial kingdom. There's no, no thousand year kingdom. So, does this rule and reign with Christ tie to the millennial, the literal millennial kingdom, or does this have implications that extend beyond the millennial kingdom? Oh, I think it does beyond the millennial kingdom even. The the, talk, the, the um, discussion of Jesus, I, I cited Matthew 19 there, and there are many others you could cite, but it, the Lord is talking very clearly there about, I think anyway, but he's talking about his kingdom, a literal kingdom. Right. It doesn't seem to me to be just the eternal state. But regardless of that, whether you're amillennial or postmillennial or premillennial, and I know those the words don't all mean as much to some of you guys, the important point is, regardless of what you believe in the system, how you put it together, those promises, and they're going to apply to you wherever you are in those, those views, those promises to you should determine how you live today. You see, one of the central teachings of the New Testament is a new order has dawned. 
with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension back to the Father. This is one of the major thesis statements of the Gospel of John. With, with the, the work of Christ accomplished, it's done, it's over. His death, burial, resurrection, ascension. The new order has dawned. I used to say new age, but that, that doesn't work too well anymore because that has a different meaning. But, so a new order. A new order has dawned. And you and I are part of that new order. When we put our faith in Christ, we are part of that new order. That's what Paul's appealing to. You're part of the new order. These are some of the duties and responsibilities you'll have when the new order is culminated. You're going to rule and reign with Christ. Now, if that's going to be your responsibility in the coming kingdom, good night. Can't you be competent to handle these little things here? And when he puts it that way, all of a sudden you want to respond, yeah. I've been working with two businessmen here in town. I'm not going to say any more because I don't want you to figure out who it is. But they have a major dispute among themselves. And it deals with some contract things in a, in a civil arrangement. And you know, quite frankly, men... The only reason they can't settle it is because of pride. That's the only reason they can't settle it. And we have used this passage. You guys are a testimony to the world on how Christians can settle disagreements. And you must settle this disagreement. The Apostle Paul is making it very, very clear what your responsibility is. Now, the other guy that's working with me on this, we, we haven't hit him across the head with a two-by-four yet and really said to them, your pride and arrogance, we haven't said it that way, but that is really what's going on. And, I mean, it's hard because they've been in the middle of this for a couple of years. I mean, it is really hard. But the bottom line is they will not submit to binding arbitration. There's a Christian guy that does this. They won't do it because one of them. And it is nothing more than pride. I mean, he just, and it's really, really, really hard. I mean, I'm not saying these are easy things. But if we are an eschatological community, if we are a community that is part of the new order, Paul is appealing to that. Settle those things among yourselves. And he gives a second reason, and it's connected to the first one, and it's verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Same word, same context. We will have responsibility over the angels. I don't know about you, but that, that's, that's an almost unimaginable, awesome thought. But part, and, I, and again, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I honestly, I mean, in terms of, it's true, and it's affirmed in some other parts of Scripture, but it's saying, because you see, we, let, let's, if we can kind of put it on a hierarchy, here we are now, the, in, in Psalm 8, it says that men, human beings are a little lower than the angels. And there are, anyway. But when, when we, a part of the new order, then rule and reign with Christ as join heirs with Christ, we're now over the angels. We're now, because of sin, we're below the, I mean, you know, think of a hierarchy. But it's just, that's just, I mean, to me, that's just an absolutely unimaginable thought. I can read the words, I understand the words, and not terribly difficult words, but I don't know what that means. Except that Jesus... The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is obviously the creator and supreme being and has authority over the angels. And if you and I are joined heir with Christ, then we will have an administrative authority over the angels. Jim, what, what if we want to sit that out and we'd rather not do that when we get to heaven? Uh, I don't think that's... I don't know, Fred, but I don't <laughs> think that... I See, I don't exactly know what that means, but if that is part of your responsibility, you cannot sit it out. But I, you know, I don't know. But where you're given a responsibility, but it's equipped to yeah, it's just it's 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 appealing again, and and that's what's central to this. It's appealing again to who we will be 
which should influence how we are. And his appeal is, can't you deal with the matters of this life now? If this is who you will be, it should affect who you are now. What's the definition within this context of an angel? Of what? An angel. Oh, an angel? Well, that is, uh, that's not a disputed word. It's from the Greek angelos. It's a messenger, messenger of God. And there are angels. There's an entire host of angels that serve God. You know, his messenger, so to speak. And, I mean, uh, I can expand on it even a little bit further, Dave. There, uh, Paul talks about this. Uh, there are a couple of other parts in uh, Daniel and some others. There are ranks and orders of the angels, too, that God has created. Cherubim, cherubim seraphim, that serve him. I mean, this. But they are servants of God. They're his messengers, and um, they exclusively serve God. But also in serving God, sometimes they serve us. In the sense that I I believe there are two places in Scripture where it talks about the idea of a guardian angel. And I don't exactly know all that that means except God's protective hand and his guarding hand can apparently come through angels that we don't need. The book of Hebrews says that sometimes when we entertain people, we're, we're attending angels unaware. And I don't exactly, what does that mean? That Because angels can take on lots of forms, the Bible says. So I've just gotten to the end of what I know, Dave. But it's that kind of uh, a creature, a being that God has created. They're not human beings. They serve God. They are his messengers. And they will be in submission to us. We will have authority over them because we'll join us with Christ. So you see what he's doing. He has two things. You're going to rule and reign with Christ over the, over the world, and you're going to have administrative authority over the angels. Settle these things now between yourself. Is, when you say it's only mentioned twice of guardian angels, is that the same as archangels? No, no, no not at all. Um, an archangel there is one uh, 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 Michael is called an archangel there's only one named in scripture it doesn't mean there aren't more but um, Gabriel's not an archangel he's not mentioned as an, as an archangel doesn't mean he isn't right. doesn't mean he isn't so um, anyway I, I think I've answered your question they're not the same you know, I like, this is my thought, and this isn't biblical, but my thought of a guardian angel is when my children were young, and they were out alone, because they knew the Lord, the Lord was protecting them through a guardian angel. I can't, I'm, that's not biblical, but that's, but it's the idea, it's sometimes, sometimes things happen to us, and it's like, oh my, it's almost like something was keeping me from danger there. And, I mean, we just can't prove that. We can't be absolutely definitive that that was a guardian angel. If you've ever seen, uh, what's that Christmas movie? Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. What's the name of that? It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you That that is so unbiblical. It's totally unbiblical. But it's a great movie, and it's a great idea of Clarence, I think is his name. Isn't it, Clarence? And just the things that he does is he's a messenger. He's a messenger from, from, from God for uh, whatever Jimmy Stewart's name is in the movie. And he, you know, he helps him through all these crises to the end where he comes to realize that taking his own life would be ridiculous. Look at all that I have. Look at all that. And so, anyway. Um, how did I get on that movie? But anyway, I think the, the point is, yeah, Mark. Uh, when he says that we will judge angels, who are we? Believers. Believers will judge the angels? That's correct. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not God that judges? I, I'm confused with that. Well, now remember, uh, the, uh, and that's, the word judge has, it's krino in Greek, has a couple of different nuances, like a lot of English words. Judge as in applying law and interpreting law in given situations, or it can mean have ruling responsibility over, have ruling authority over. I think that's what applies here. It's having the ruling or having, uh, what's another way of saying that? Having administrative authority over. Another way of saying it, I don't know if you had come in the room, but 
Psalm 8 says that human beings are a little lower than the angels. Okay? In the new order of things, because we are now joint heirs with Christ in the coming kingdom, we will be ruling with Christ. That the Bible said we will rule and reign with Christ. So we're no longer below the angels. We're now with Christ. We're above the angels. At minimum, that's what it means to have ruling authority over the angels. Now, I don't think it means we can selfishly send angels and do whatever, you know, get me a cup of coffee, Gabriel. You know, I don't think that's what it means. But at, at least, at, at minimum, it means we are joint heirs with Christ with administrative responsibility and authority over all of creation, including the angels. All right. Now, are you with me? Are you with Paul? I mean, do you understand what he's doing? That's why if you follow what, I know there's a lot of stuff up here, but if you follow this theme, that we are an eschatological community, that's what he's appealing to here. And because of that truth, that should determine how you live now. And that's part of the, that gets into some of those wonderful words in the scriptures. That's part of hope. That's part of trust, that's part of confidence, part of certainty, and how we live our lives. We are different people. That's not said pridefully. Because the reason we are who we are is because of everything God has done through us in Christ. We didn't do any of it. But now he's explaining to us, because of who you are now positioned, who you will be in the future, it should affect how you live now. Let me put it another way. We should be living now the way we will be living in the coming kingdom. That's how we should be living. Which, when you think of it that way, that becomes very transformational. The scriptures, Peter does this, the scriptures talk of us now being pilgrims. And a pilgrim, this isn't permanent. We're passing through. This is no longer a real home. Um, I was with a guy yesterday. His dad's father, excuse me, his dad's um, wife died. Uh, and it was his second wife, his first wife had died quite a few years ago of cancer. And... Um, and the guy I was talking with, his sister had been talking with uh, their father, and uh, he, she said to her dad, she's in a better place. And her dad looked at her and said, no, when we die, that's it. And that was such a shock to these two adult children who are in their 30s and 40s to hear their dad say, no, that's it. We're born, we live, and we die, and that's it. They'd never heard him say that. And so he came to me yesterday. He said, my dad, and I don't, you know, this is one of those mysteries. You mean you never knew that? You, but that's not the point. He said, my dad doesn't know Christ. He's 82 years old, and I want him to come to know Christ. Because if he really believes what he told my sister, he really believes that when you die, that's it. He has absolutely no hope. He is absolutely he's in despair. You see, you and I are not in despair. You and I are not hopeless. We have all these remarkable, astonishing, incredible promises that God's made to us because of the certainty of what Christ did for us at Calvary and what his resurrection accomplished and all of that. Death is, I, I don't know about you, but that, to me, if death ends everything, then why in the world does it matter how I live? Really, practically speaking, if death ends it, why do it doesn't matter how I live. But if death doesn't end it, I don't know if you know the, the philosopher of the Enlightenment, his name was Pascal, but he, he floated a dictum, a proposition. He said, um, I'm really paraphrasing it, but he said, you know, um, he was talking to a guy who didn't believe in anything, a total atheist. He said, you know, when you die, 
If what you believed is accurate and true and is right, then you haven't lost anything. But when you die, if what I believe is true, you have lost everything. You follow the wager? Which one are you going to bank on, my friend? That's what he said. Guy who's an atheist, a secularist, if you believe that there is nothing after death, and when you die, and that's true, you haven't lost anything. But, this is Pascal speaking, I'm a Christian, and I believe there's a heaven, but I also believe there's a hell. And I believe it matters what you do with Christ, and you are rejecting Christ. If I'm right, and you die, you have lost everything. And he says, are you willing to make that wager? Do you follow me? Paul is saying what you believe is absolutely true. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ is true. He made a whole bunch of promises to you. They're true. If they're true, that should affect how you live now. That's what he's appealing to. And that's a very powerful, life-changing way to think because it is true. And so this man and I, as we were, we were talking, and we, just, we started talking and praying and thinking, what can we do to present the truth to this man? He is extremely, he incredibly talented person, even at 82, very busy. But if he doesn't know Christ. So it was just, that was really a shock to me. I didn't expect that when he came down to talk to me. I suspect some of you know people like that. Now let's go on with how he uh, begins in verse 4 and uh, through 8. As he begins to apply these truths. If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Verse 7, actually then, this is already a defeat for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. It would be rather, it would be better really if you were wronged, better really if you were defrauded. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud against your brother. Now, I hope you followed what he's saying here. Verse 4 and 5, isn't there someone in your fellowship that can help settle this with you? Isn't there one wise person? And second, in verse 7, you know, if you can't settle it, it's better to accept the loss. That's hard to swallow, that isn't it? It's better to accept the law. Well, what do you think about this? That's pretty hard. That's pretty hard teaching, especially in America, a very litigious society where we are very it's very common to see lawsuits, isn't it? I mean, and I again all of these issues are not dealing with criminal law. It, it's not what it's dealing with. But it's, uh, it's really, I think, I think this is a very convicting passage uh, for um, the way in which we often think about things. But if we are an eschatological community, which is what he's appealing to, then we should be able to settle these things between brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be able to do it. All right? Any questions or thoughts or comments? Do you want to protest? Do you want to push back? Do you want to say this is wrong? Paul's out of his mind. Why is this such a big deal? Why why are you putting so much importance into this? That's a great question, Dave. The only thing I can think of is it must have really been a big deal in Corinth. This must have been just a huge issue there. There must have been a great deal. And in the ancient world, and honestly, to some extent, the way it is in America, there was a great deal of that. Because Rome... I'm talking about the entire Roman Empire. Rome brought order and structure to the ancient world. And part of that order and structure, I mean, they invented 
um, they, uh, they coined the word jurisprudence, that's Latin. They, they coined that word. They set up law courts. They had a, they invented that, I shouldn't say invented, they developed that concept that, that's very important to America, rule of law. They, that's, their, that's their baby. That's where that came from. So it was a very, very, very important part of the structure and order Rome brought to the ancient world. And so what happened was then all the disputes, and again, I'm not talking about criminal issues here, all of the disputes were settled in the pagan Roman law court. And that's the way Rome wanted it, because it prevented uh, or at least diminished vigilante, do you know what I mean by that, vigilante kind of thing, or just you know, clan justice or those kinds of things or vengeful justice, you know, your clan did this to my clan and I'm going to get back to you, which was very much a part of the ancient world and still very much a part of the Middle Eastern culture today. And so that's what Rome was dealing with. And so it, was, it must have been a really, really big issue. As we know, it wasn't a Greco-Roman world, so it must have been a big issue at Corinth. And Paul's just saying, is the new community you are in Christ, you settle the things here. Now today, and I can, some of these organizations you've maybe heard of, there's Christian Legal Society, there's a local group of attorneys, there's the Alliance Defense Fund, there are a number of organizations in the United States that will help churches settle things like this. Churches or individuals? Hmm? You say churches. Well, I mean within churches, within churches. Like if you have, we, we, uh, this situation I'm working with, we are considering presenting to them an arbitrator from the Christian Legal Society. They, they will come in, it's for a fee, but they will come in, it's basically the expense to get the person here, and it, you submit the binding arbitration and you settle. It's Christians settling an issue between Christians. I don't know, it's, it, it's just, this is the kind of thing where, at least I think it is, maybe it isn't with the, where you guys come from, but this is the kind of thing in our culture today you don't hear about anything like this. But you're only talking within people within the same church. I mean, what's the likelihood of I'm going to get in a lawsuit with somebody? I go to a big church. I, I, mean, I don't even do business with anybody there normally. Yeah, you I mean, might. <laughs> but you, you might. You, you know, you could. Yeah, you could sometimes. I mean, I, in in this group I'm with, with right now, these two guys are in the church. In the same church. In the same church. Yeah. And they have been very good. They have been good friends. And, and it's just things... There are a lot of factors. That I think do. that the principle should be applied more broadly, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it is. More even. Oh, it's not only it, it, it's it's among Christian brothers and sisters yeah. across church boundaries right. too. I mean, there there are just. Uh, I mean, I teach ethics, and I have a, a couple of case studies that the students read of applying this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Across church boundaries, mm-hmm. that it's we should be able to settle these things among ourselves fairly and equitably, because of who we are, because of who we are. Because listen, he's going to talk about this coming up. When we don't act like an eschatological community, and the world sees us fighting and bickering, and what are they going to say? You're no different than everybody else, everybody else around here. What's the difference between you guys? Yeah, you're, you're just you're doing exactly what everybody else is doing. So, I mean, I'm not seeing all this neat stuff you're talking about when I see you guys living it. That's, that's what he's going to come up, uh, he's going to conclude. So why is not encouraging that you don't have to have a dispute between each other? Try to have, to get along and be peaceful instead of segregating your court. It's just confusing me that he's saying to them that you, you keep your... your dirty laundry between yourselves and not encouraging that you should not have dirty laundry to start with. Well, I mean, it's dirty laundry. <laughs> That'd be the goal. And, and I mean, that, I mean in, in a sense, that's true. But when and if legal disputes come up, Mark, and again, not criminal issues, but like a boundary dispute, uh, a... You should be able, because of who you are and all that that involves, you should be able to settle it among yourself. Because you love each other in Christ, your brothers and, and sisters in Christ, 
You are part of a whole new order in Christ. Here are some of the things you're going to be doing in the future. Can't you settle it now? Instead of taking it to someone who doesn't have your values, doesn't have your perspectives, is not a part, and he's appealing to that. I mean, again, perhaps more than anything else, what is it, and maybe I shouldn't say more than anything, but equal to all the other issues is the testimony you're giving to those outside the faith. You are just evidencing you're no different than everybody else. You hate each other. You're angry with each other. You sue each other. You fight each other. What are you telling me about all this wonderful stuff of Jesus? I don't see you acting any different than anybody else. So what, what do you think about, like, non-financial issues? You know, like, say you have a family member you're angry with, and do you think that applies within the same context, even though it doesn't have anything to do with money? Well, Dave, I don't exactly know what well, you might well, mean there. I mean, if it's a disagreement between a dad and a child, dad and a son, I mean, to, to some extent, yes. To, to some extent, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know all that could be. But the body of Christ, and by, you know, I mean believers, you should be able to help others settle disagreements or disputes. I mean, you know, the big legal term is arbitrate. But not everything needs to go to binding arbitration. But where you just help facilitate the love between a dad and a son. If, a, if something's broken down. Come in between. Help them out. That's not necessarily a legal issue, Dave, but it's a, it's a Dave, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, not such a legal issue. It's just it's to help bring the peace that should be characterizing the body. If you see something like that, you know, it's like, this is absolutely ridiculous, but let's just pretend. You know, you go into church, and in the lobby of your church, you have two of your members duking it out. Aren't you going to—somebody's going to get in there and say, now stop that. <laughs> If there's any place you shouldn't be fighting, it's in the lobby of church. I mean, you know, so we would, so if we see without people duking it out, we see disputes. And uh, uh, your example between families or within families. Yeah, let's help facilitate reconciliation. I mean, I've done, I can't can even, I don't think I could number. I've done many, many uh, instances in my life of trying to get a husband and wife to reconcile. Now, I'm not a therapist, so I'm talking about pastoral-type counseling, but I'm not a therapist at all. But things just to get them, get them talking again so they can be reconciled. We do that in, fa- in marriages. We try to do that. Sometimes we'll do it. So it's any believers. We should be that, that eschatological community where we're learning how to help believers settle disputes. Because we live in a fallen, broken world that's going to happen. Because of who we are and what has been promised to us, we should help facilitate peace in the body. Now, this Sunday, you'll probably become aware of 19 disputes in your local church, the warring factions, and now you say, now what am I going to do with all that from what I've learned from chapter 6? Yeah, I mean, it's... One of the most difficult things about life, even for believers, is interpersonal relationships. Isn't it? I mean, it really is. It's very, very, very difficult. Here's an example of how we just try to resolve that. We should be different. Jim, we, we could be saying, well, that's like I was just kind of saying in jest, it's beyond me. and. Uh, but if we're being conformed to Christ and the teachings that we're reading in, in our studies here, when does that begin? If it doesn't begin, and I'm not saying anything here, inferring anything, but when does that begin and when do we embrace that responsibility to begin to change in conformity with what we read? Is that something, I mean, it's real easy because I think of excuses I make for things. Like, I, I'm not ready for that, or I can put that off. But when, in fact, if I'm reading it, um, I need to 
to do that now uh, rather than excuse my give an excuse for failing out. Well, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not exactly sure how to answer that because the basic biblical answer is now. <laughs> I mean, because we are called to obedience to the things of, of God. So, I mean, Fred, the, the, the answer is now. However, and I'm, this is not a rationalization, it's, it's a reality. We are all in process of being conformed to the image of Christ. So that process word, which I think is another word for sanctification, is, um, is just that. There are, over time, there are major things we have to deal with, and we're, we're making those a priority in our obedience because they are the things that have gotten us into difficulty. They're the major sins that may have caused us to even make the step of faith toward Christ. But I think the, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more sensitive we become to even little things like this. But these are areas I, I, I really do need to respond in obedience to this. I, I can't rationalize it anymore. I think sometimes God... Um, and I'm really making this up, but I, I don't think it's an unbiblical way to say it. God, just push it. Now, I'll use your name because you're here. Fred, it's time for you to deal with this now. I, it really is. Because this is affecting your testimony. It's time for you to deal with this. This is affecting your relationship with me. I want you to deal with this now. And do, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, the, the ideal is everything we should, because obedience is the mark of the believer. But reality is the process there are lots of things that we just keep i'm so i'm so focused on this particular issue it's hard for me to deal with anything else right now kind of approach but as god over time you that process you're getting victory in a lot of these areas of your life and it's just some other things the lord just is kind of pressing it's really it's important for you to deal with this now I, i'm I'm not sure I can prove that biblically, but I think that's the the pragmatic reality of in the fallenness and brokenness of our lives often. That's how often things are dealt with. But, I mean, ultimately, Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. All right? Let me do one. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, does this statement, this, this is a new... This is like a, a light bulb that went off in my head. Just that statement, the future promise of God should determine how we live today. Mm. If someone comes to you with a problem, that almost is uh, the whole premise behind you. You can just kind of use that as a summary statement. It's like, all right, how are you mm. going to solve this problem? Let's, let's start with this mm-hmm. before we start mm-hmm. going that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, you're right. I mean, and that is, that's, a, that's kind of a central idea you see in a lot of parts of the Scripture. And that's a great way always to think about issues, challenges, problems. I should be living based on the future promises God made to me. That should inform and affect how I live my life today. You know? And I've heard you say there's over 6,000 promises in here. How's a guy get hold of I'm not sure I put a number to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it it, it is. Uh, yeah, well, that's a, <laughs> maybe a better word is is utterly, totally confused to have me in any way close to Rick Warren. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know if I can put a number to it, but there are thousands, absolutely. Let's do, let's do the third reason, because I think this needs to be connected. This one is a little more difficult. In the outline, I put it, believers are in Christ and are to be removed from the world's influence. Do you not know? Now, what did I tell you about that? Oh, how you freak. They know it. He taught them this. It's a way of reminding them. Do you not know? That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Now, the point of verse 11, and that's the key verse, is become what you are. That sounds a little strange at first, but it isn't. Become what you are. Who are you in Christ? I'm washed, sanctified, and justified. Right? Three of you said right, so the rest of you don't believe that. If you put your faith in the Lord, that is your position. This is who you are. This is how he sees you. So become what you are. It's like a prince in training. You have not assumed... You, positionally, you are a prince. Yeah. I mean, that's who you are. You hold the title. But practically you speaking, you are being... You're, who you are is being connected with... Am I right to say With what you are. I mean, who you are in Christ, you're practically <laughs> being transformed into that. So become what you are. Because... The reason the previous three verses, or two verses, 9 and 10, the kingdom of God does not involve these vices in 10 and 11, 9 and 10. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the world. And you're no longer a part of that. You used to be, that's what he says. Such were, some of you were, past tense. That's what you used to be. But you're not anymore. Who am I? I'm washed, sanctified, justified. That's who I am. So how does that fit into this issue? Why would you take your issues to people that don't share your values, share your perspective? Why would you try to settle a dispute that two brothers in Christ have to people that aren't brothers? Why would you do that? That is inconsistent with who you are. You should Settle things among those who share the same value, same perspective. Because in 9 and 10, those, and I don't know what other word to use, so I think it's the right word to use, those vices, that vice list, that's not going to be in the kingdom. You will not see that in the kingdom. And if we are an eschatological community, And this is all that's part of our future. And we know those kinds of sins are not going to be in the future. Then why in the world would you try to settle things in front of people who embrace those kinds of things? You follow what he's saying? Because that's not who you are anymore. So become what you are in Christ. Live now what you are in Christ. Woody. But if you have a... If the person is, uh, whatever the issue is, the dispute is, whatever, is not a believer. They don't, they're not, they haven't trusted Christ. They don't have any idea of who you are in that area. They don't share any of that. And you have to decide as a believer how you will settle that. But you're not encouraged to take it. I think... It would be like a number of things in a fallen, broken world. That would be your last resort. What were you going to say, David? I sued a guy that was a believer um, just to get him to settle because I, I, I told him the whole time that I wanted him to do this, but he wouldn't listen. But he listened once I filed a lawsuit. But we, we solved it amicably. We did exactly mm-hmm. what you said to do. Mm-hmm. We had uh, a pastor come in, mm-hmm. and he let me pick who it was, which I was kind of surprised by. But uh, um, we just you know, spent us two hours, and we you know, basically beat each other to a bloody pulp. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's very. That's what these two guys were working on right now. It, but, but I can tell you that when we did that, we, you know, really felt that we had solved our disagreement because mm-hmm. we, we had agreed that before we went into the room that we weren't going to walk out of it, but you know, without solving it. Did you become uh, possibly friends after? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I wouldn't say it was really animosity because we really felt that he was Catholic, which is, you know, very different, you know, kind of take on this, but it was really his idea to want to do this. Mm. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I think that it's great advice. It's really hard to get people to come. To it is, it it's is. Really and it, this is what, you know, that's why the, the, like having someone that they can agree on in a binding arbitration or mediation kind of framework that can really that can really help but well you've got to get all parties involved to that point I don't, I, don't, I don't know like you know we were I, I thought that you know I was very amiable towards it but I can't imagine if you had two people that were just convinced that right you know how would you even get the process I think you you must like we just studied those you must lay that out before them and say here Here's God. This is the manufacturer's handbook. Here's what God's saying. This is how you should handle this. And to be honorable and obedient to your Lord and Savior. This is what he wants you to do. Now, Woody, if you have somebody that doesn't share any of that, that becomes difficult. But I honestly, this, I think, is the logical, if, if not the honorable way to do it. That is the last resort. I don't, I don't have an issue like that. <laughs> I, I thought it was just being conceptual and theoretical. <laughs> I was pretty sure of that, Woody. But uh, it is this, and it's, I believe it's getting, um, well, uh, this is an anecdotal statement. I think it's getting more and more difficult in our culture, in our world, to do business. To, to have this, uh, be, because it is, uh, when we enter into all kinds of agreements, we have the incredible contracts that are just pages and pages and pages long and attorneys are making fortune because what we're trying to do is we're trying to cover all the possible bases right. on a document uh, and it, it, it just without trust the sanctity of a commitment yeah, without, yeah, with, if that isn't there then that's you're, it's every, every, nobody trusts any and that, that's a broad statement and that's not completely true but we're so lacking of trust and confidence that a couple of years ago I went to a session um and, and then I bought the book uh, by a guy, and the title of the book is called The Speed of Trust. And the thesis of the book is that in, in American free market capitalism, we've lost trust. And without trust, it's such a key component of free market capitalism. That's not even talking about the spiritual dimensions, which I think is central. But, and he's absolutely right. He, just, he showed just the cost to our society of not trusting anyone. The cost of that, I mean, no, both the numerical and financial cost, but also the in relationships and among companies. And it's just, and it's just, it was really, it's like, duh, after you heard all that and you read the book, it's like, he's absolutely right. But I want to tell you, the only way that can be restored is through a spiritual commitment. Because I can trust you guys to a much greater degree. You can pull your, the wool over my eyes and maybe a facade and you're totally, totally being deceptive and duplicitous. But the odds are pretty high that trust is important to you. Because if you know Christ, there's a transformation that's going on. And that's what he's appe- he, Paul, in this path, is appealing to. Now, it's, i I got to go because I've got this 115 commitment. So I'm really glad we got this done. Because I like to do these things in a unit, so we get it all done in one time. So uh, you got it now, don't you? Chapter six, one through eleven. Powerful, powerful passage. Next week we'll deal with chapter six, twelve through the end, which is the third disorder. I'm going to pray. Lord, thanks for this time. Thanks to these men, and Lord, uh, this is incredibly practical stuff that we're reading. I hope the men leave with um, maybe one primary thought in their mind and heart that all of the promises that you've made to us should determine how we live today. That's what Paul is appealing to in encouraging these Corinthian believers to settle things among themselves. What a terrible witness it is to have Christians fighting and, and, and bitterness and hatred toward one another. As then we're no different than anyone else. And that's not true. We are an eschatological community, a community that is waiting for the return of our Lord. And uh, that should affect how we live today. These enormous promises. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus. 
We're going to have ruling authority over the angels even, but also in the coming kingdom, all of the vices and, and terribly dysfunctional and hurtful things are not going to be there. So we should be able to settle things, becoming who we are. So thank you for these grand truths. Help motivate us to represent you and represent you well in all that we do and say. In your son's name we pray. Amen. See you next week. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.